Joining us now, Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump. Until our country's representatives can figure out what is going on. People trying to get into this country have been stopped. Visas to enter the U.S. were stopped as they tried to board flights or were detained. If you look at illegal immigration and the wall and the, you know, strengthened borders and the kind of things that we have to do for safety of our country. As an anti-terrorism measure. When you say you're afraid, I think you should be afraid. No major terror attacks have been carried out on U.S. soil by people from any of those countries. U.S. federal judge decreed an emergency halt. You see it at the airport, you see it all over. It's working out very nicely. And we are people, we are not the government. This is uh, completely un-American. Why I have to be punished for this somebody else's? This is the Media and Religion Podcast, your source for the latest conversations and research at the intersection of media and religion. I'm your host, Brian Kelly. Joining me here in the studio today is Noor Halabi and Chrissy Peterson, and my co-host, Art Bamford. Hello. Noor is a PhD candidate at the Annenberg School of the University of Pennsylvania and a senior resident fellow at the Center for Media, Religion, and Culture. Noor's dissertation examines American immigration policy and discourses of immigration and forced migration. Chrissy is a PhD candidate in media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder and a research fellow at the CMRC. Her research examines how young Muslim Americans engage with online media sites, images, videos, and creative projects as spaces to articulate their multifaceted experiences. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. In unison. <laughs> uh, the question we'll open up the podcast with is, uh, how do you think scholars can study Muslim communities as scholars without being distracted by all of this news and happenings in contemporary media around us? Um, so I think I'll, I'll start. Um, I think one of the most important themes that communication scholars have noticed in Trump's pattern of communicating is um, his ability to distract the public um, with discussion of a timely issue that he or his tweets will present. Um, and this way, rather than allowing the public to see issues as part of a historical, geographic, and, and broader cultural context, um, we see them sort of in this ahistorical way. I'll give you an example. When Trump speaks about the criminality of Mexicans, he's able to abstract the issue of illegal immigration from bigger issues of corporate greed in the United States, lack of immigration reform that provides sufficient legal pathways to immigration and citizenship, or even economic imperatives that would push people to immigrate in spite of becoming illegal immigrants. What we see as scholars is that, is that the same dynamic is at play with how Trump um, represents Muslims, whether in the United States or abroad. So for example, when he continuously s stresses the phrase radical Islamic terrorism, um, what he does is he uh, talks about the issue of radicalists, again, abstracted from the many mass manifestations of peaceful Islam, both among Muslim Americans in the U.S. and abroad. Um, and so we are able to see this connection constantly of terrorism and Islam and completely see it as, as divorced from the reality of how Muslims and Muslim Americans practice and how Muslims around the world practice. 
Yeah, and a lot of my work looks at visual images, and so I spend a lot of time thinking about how there's this longer history in Western culture of visually portraying Muslims in certain manners, and a lot of times this is minimizing their experiences, focusing on violence, aggression, irrationality, subhumanness, and so I look a lot at you know how this rhetoric that Trump uses also plays into this very oversimplified narratives and very much these kind of visual portrayals of Muslims as tied to animalistic natures or aggression. Um, and so a lot of my work is trying to think about how we can kind of look at the complexities that exist. Um, and I think the biggest challenge dealing with the rhetoric that Trump uses is that he's so much focused on these really quick sound bites, these, these very basic images that you can use, these oversimplified narratives. Um, and the problem with that is then there's no complexity, there's no depth to it. And so I think our role as scholars is to kind of bring these, um, bring more of a complex way of looking at the world back into these phrases um, to move beyond the, as we've as we all know, Trump excels in the um, the you know the political rallies and very much in these like quick sound bites, mm -hmm. these catchphrases, um, you know, and 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 using these kind of minimizing people, focusing on these insulting um, words and phrases, um, and that is really difficult to fight against because it's hard to show the the humanity behind these images and the more complex experiences. Now you both started doing your research on these subjects before the 2016 election, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, has it felt like a huge change in terms of how you approach your work? Because yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to me because one of the things I'll say is I had kind of an interesting moment when I went to the Women's March um, in 2017, and all of a sudden you saw images of the, the famous Shepherd Ferry image of a Muslim woman wearing an American flag hijab, and all of a sudden I was like, whoa, all people could care about Muslims all of a sudden, which is which is good, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's actually like a positive that all of a sudden people, feminists, progressives, actually are concerned about the issues of Muslim rights and religi religious minorities, and that's fantastic. Um, but <laughs> the reason we got to this point is because we ha we've been, we're dealing with such terrible situations in terms of how Muslims are being treated in our country. Um, so it's kind of a it's a it's a good thing and a bad thing. We're seeing so much more in the media representations of Muslims that are actually becoming more. Um, more complex and multifaceted and well-rounded. We can think about The Big Sick is a really great example of a really popular movie about a, um, a, a young Muslim man um, that religion is sort of part of the experience, but not, you know, it's not focused on this terrorist narrative. Um, so yeah, I think it's kind of, um, it's been an interesting process for sure. I think I'm in a peculiar position as a Muslim Arab scholar positioned in the U.S. Um, so I started my research project thinking I was going to look at immigration comparatively with the US and Canada and the United Arab Emirates and Lebanon as my case studies. Mm. Um, I was about to go on my first uh, research trip to Canada when the Muslim ban came out and it was clear that I wouldn't be able to get back in the country. And as Chrissy said, what that does to you is yes, it's a setback, but it also puts, it highlights the importance of looking at this issue in the United States, and it makes you realize that it's not its not a subtle thing, that this narrative of the U.S. being a nation of immigrants, is, it's not a given, and there is a certain fallacy to it. Um, just one of my case studies, of course, is on the Muslim ban, and it's a never-ending case study, because as the Muslim ban gets uh, goes into new court 
and court rulings mm -hmm. and all that, that is sort of a never-ending chapter. And at some point, you need to decide as a scholar, well, where do I end the story? Mm -hmm. And where do I, as a scholar, sort of dedicate the rest of my career to investigating a broader a broader yeah. issue of sort of the issue of Islam. And I feel like that's such but a strategy of, I don't know if it's deliberate, but the strategy of, that Trump is using is every, if everything's going at this fast pace, nobody can catch up and nobody can make sense of what's going on. And I find the same exact thing. I'm just constantly being like, oh, there's this new thing, this new idea. I don't know when I could ever finish writing my dissertation because there's never going to be a point where we've reached the you know, the end point of this because it's so ongoing. Mm -hmm. um, in my research, I traveled. I'm visiting people and I'm talking about, you know, Trump being elected. And then I'm visiting people and talking about the inauguration. And then I'm talking about the Trump, the travel ban. Like the conversations I had were just constantly changing the, the context and what's going on. Even just being in the studio recording the podcast, before we hit record, we were talking about the animalistic oversimplification and yeah. dehumanization of immigrants. Um, or Muslims in particular, but uh, the CPAC is going on right now, and Trump just gave a speech a couple of hours ago where he used, he read this poem that he read a lot of times on the campaign trail called The Snake about taking pity on this pitiful animal and inviting it inside your house um, and then nurturing it back to health, and then the result of that is the this caretaker gets bitten by the snake, and so it's this cautionary tale about, mm -hmm. you know, what refugees and immigrants would do. And just in case it was too subtle, Trump often would say, like, this is about immigration. <laughs> like, so that's not an interpretation or like a, you know, a wild uh, leap in the dark, but it, that's, that's what the message is. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, in my, in a lot of, like I was saying, a lot of my work is focused on what are these images that people see and how do the images mm -hmm. in turn, you know, for create the sense of fear in people that people will say, you know, and I've heard people say this, you know, well, I'm not, I don't, I don't have anything against Islam, but I get a little nervous if I see someone on the plane who has a beard or who is wearing a hijab. And that's kind of telling because there's this kind of constant beating into our minds in American culture through movies and TV that these things are dangerous and they're, they're associated with this. I mean, every time you see a movie with a terrorist, all of a sudden over, you know, in the in the background, you hear the call to prayer and you see, you know, exotic, you know, um, architecture and and women with headscarves. And so it's like these associations come into play. And, and when you when you associate Muslims or immigrants with animals and snakes and then there's this sense of they're they're not even human. So we've seen this right in so many cases of um, genocide that how this operates is you focus on people as not being people anymore, they're animals. Um, yeah, yeah, and even the, the kind of parallel framing um, from a religious standpoint as well, I mean, using this thing, this story about a snake very and a woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's certainly a very biblical metaphor that's being made, and I think at underlying it, there is constantly a narrative framework of the U.S. being a Judeo-Christian nation. Mm -hmm. And that this is this is a group of the population that doesn't fall within that sort of trajectory of religious sort of discourse. And so by framing immigration within that narrative of the snake and the apple and the woman and, you know, all of these different things reinforce that image that, you know, we need to articulate immigration within that broader framework of a Judeo-Christian identity mm -hmm. in the United States. I'm interested that. Nor what you think in terms of why recently there's been this push away from just immigration at all. 
It's a very deep question. I think part of it is the, the sense of anxiety in the U.S. around identity. I think there's a cultural crisis going on. Um, and as a result, the U.S. Is, is reframing at the moment what it sees itself as. It's not just an issue of immigration or Islamophobia or fear of immigrants, but it's becoming a bigger sort of narrative about who we are and what role we play in the world. It's almost a geopolitical sort of switch back to isolationism, switch back to you know, closing up the borders, less free trade. Yeah. So there's a correlation between all of these different issues we're speaking about. It's not just one. I, I, yeah. I mean, America First was the slogan of the mm -hmm. campaign, and so yeah. it's no coincidence that that sort of policy is being affected. You know, you brought up America First, and Christine and I talk about this. I, I strongly believe in this notion of radical contextualization. As scholars, mm -hmm. it is very important. I heard it first from the scholar Krista Salamandra in her study of um, Muslims in the public sphere. And so when I started looking at, in my research on immigration, where America first came from, I realized there were, there were other sort of narratives that have come up and used the exact same terms in particularly the 1920s, just around the time when there was a, a very big anxiety around um, disease coming in with immigrants. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, Jews coming in and all these other sort of religious groups that we saw as foreign um, and they came on the heels of the exclusion era so all of these different things combined into yet again America first because immigrants are a threat it's part of a, a cyclical process and it's almost like Obama always speaks about you know it's it's an ebb and wave of how we re-identify it feels like nostalgia there's a nostalgic piece to it as well of, of that idea of going back in time. Making America great again. I mean, again, it's like, it's not subtle or it doesn't take a lot to, you know, interpret that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a piece that I really love. I forgot the name of the scholar and she reframes her study of immigration as making America 1920s again. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. she again traces all these narratives to the 1920s, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which was a time where everyone went, our families used to be united, we used mm -hmm. to have a much stronger family structure, we should move towards that, we should become more socially conservative. Um, and it was around the time where cities came around and communication came around and it sort of dismantled some barriers mm -hmm. and everyone was worried that it would bring about moral corruption mm -hmm. that you could no longer protect your home from. Mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, there, there are a lot of continuities there, which are super interesting to look at. Yeah, for sure. That's interesting. I always assumed that the, the past era that's being referred to is like the 50s, like the Leave it to Beaver, Andy mm -hmm. Griffith era. That was post-World War II, like unification and like the nation coming together. But yeah, the 20s, I just hadn't heard the angle before. It's, <laughs> it, no, no it's I mean, the Griffith show get, gets talked about a lot. Yeah. A lot. And it's really interesting because it then brings up what role is communication playing and you know what role what shows did we create at a certain period of time that were perhaps overly positive and artificial that mm -hmm. were creating a movement now around you know 
resuscitating a period that perhaps never existed. Yeah, there's a really great book, the Stephanie Koontz's book, The Way We Never Were. I think that's the name of it. And yeah. it's really interesting because it actually looks at the statistics of like economics and families and, and various things. And basically that time period was a huge period of economic growth, but it was an economic growth for mostly white middle class Americans on the backs of non-white Americans, basically. Um, so the fact that people were able to get education, buy homes, move into the middle class, that was only allowed for one section of the population. I mean, I was I was just thinking as you were saying it, is that we are constantly re-articulating this mm -hmm. myth. Mm -hmm. Is it a myth that includes Jews this time? Yes. Right. You know, did it before? Perhaps not so much. Um, it, you know, is it is it a myth that ever really existed? I, I remember during my, my archival research, I went through a lot of articles of congressmen on the floor who would say things like, our founding fathers articulated the Constitution based on the idea that they wanted to preserve the benefits of this country for their posterity, which is white and Christian, right? And, and that is not something that the you know, founding fathers said. It was something that was being re-articulated in the 1880s. So I think we're constantly reimagining and pulling out from history things to support or reframe in order to support this whatever articulation of our identity is at that time. For sure. Yeah. yeah. I know we briefly mentioned it um, already, but this is just a, the Muslim ban that's being, uh, you know, just was just accepted by the Supreme Court and they'll be hearing it in March or April. That's an interesting site of continual interpretations and renewals of what it means to follow the American constitutional system and what's deemed as constitutional or not in their mm -hmm. eyes, which will have a lot of impacts and ramifications. So we've already seen um, different iterations of the Muslim ban have been uh, invalidated by district or appeals courts, which is why it got kicked up to the Supreme Court. Um, but yeah, it's been interesting to see how the proposal has changed. Initially, it was eight or nine Muslim-majority countries. Uh, the most recent iteration uh, took the Sudan out of the list and then added North Korea, parts of Venezuela, and Chad. And so that so that now because I'm so now the logic is that um, oh it's not a Muslim ban because it's not just Muslim countries which is what it was in the past but the courts so far aren't buying it and it's been interesting because they've so the um, appeals courts have been specifically reading quotes from Trump on the campaign trail saying yep. we know that you like we know the intent behind this is um, a Muslim ban because he at one point actually talked about the need for a ban of all Muslims for a while until we can figure mm -hmm. this out. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see where the Supreme Court takes that. And it's also interesting that the Virginia Court of Appeals first ruled against it like 10 to 2 for the first iteration. Mm -hmm. And then the newest iteration came back around to them and they still voted against it, but it was 9 Much to 3. Yeah. So one person actually bought that new logic and said, well, yeah, it's evolved and so now it's no longer a Muslim ban. So now I don't think it's illegal. Well. I think one thing that's interesting about this Muslim ban or deciding whether it's um, religion or not religion is that there's a th there's a thing that happens where if you talk about anti or Islamophobia or I usually say anti-Islamic rhetoric or anti-Islamic racism, people will say it's not racism because it's a religion and people choose a religion so it's not like as bad as racism because racism is like an essentialized character, you know, attacking someone for an essentialized thing about them, something they cannot change. And I think what happens a lot of times in this rhetoric is that people 
they actually for, don't realize that Islam is treated as a racial category, that Muslims are racialized into a separate group of people. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is that this whole idea of banning Muslims, that would be an impossible thing to do. Like Trump's thing, shutting down Muslims coming to this country is an impossibility. Why? Because it's a religion. It's not something that you can look at someone and say, oh, check, check, you know, you're Muslim or you're not. And it's interesting because it becomes racialized. And so again, this gets back to this whole thing of minimizing people to these certain characteristics that you can identify who someone who's Muslim or who's not Muslim. Um, and it's impossible. And I think it just brings up the fact that we're trying to essentialize and minimize people to these categories so that we can push them aside, we can exclude them from our country, we can you know, round them up and send them away. Um, and it's just this this way of thinking of the world that it's like, that's not the way things are, you know? Again, the beauty of racializing Islam, as Chrissy has pointed out, is that it doesn't capture, A, that Islam isn't a racial category, but also that Americans have distilled being Muslim to one particular ethnicity, let alone the fact that, you know, there are plenty of Muslims in Indonesia and Malaysia and South Korea and India and all of these different Muslims that I think there is an, a very sort of widespread ignorance about what a Muslim is in the U.S. that then gets tapped into um, because there, there is, there is a, a precedent of, you know, Islam and immigration being two very prickly issues um, that, you know, since 9-11 have become this, you know, perceived threat of terrorism because, you know, the terrorists came in on visit visas. But if you were to ever correlate the countries that are involved in, you know, 9-11 or any sort of prior incident, um, they were not the countries that were on the Muslim ban. So that, again, mm -hmm. raises the question, well, why are these countries being targeted if we are banning them because they threaten the, the safety of the United States. Um, another thing that was interesting was that a bunch of policy papers were circulated in Capitol Hill about the degree of background checks that Syrians go through, mm -hmm. for example, when they apply for a visa or when they are refugees, that raised a lot of awareness about how many layers of, you know, review these these refugees particularly go through. So framing them as sort of a threat is also an interesting aspect of, you know, being able to then come up with a Muslim ban and justify mm -hmm. that it is necessary to protect the safety of, of Americans living in the United States. Yeah. It's, um, it's also interesting just the idea of like, you know, talking about the importance and foundational significance of freedom of religion. Um, there's a fringe movement that hasn't yet come into the administration. We're saying that, well, Islam isn't a religion anyway, that Islam is actually a political ideology mm -hmm. yeah. that's so wrapped up in governance in the state and economics that they don't even qualify for that religious special protection class. And so that that's used as a path to get around those sorts of religious protections and say that, well, it, you know, I do respect religious freedoms, but these people aren't members of religion anyway, so a that way to is, still get to the same end. Yeah, that's part and parcel of what we see is this sort of broad ignorance in the U.S. about Islam. Mm -hmm. um, like, for example, you'll see a lot of anti-Sharia protesters, and I was once speaking to someone, and he was talking about you know, the danger of Sharia and all this other, all these other dangerous things that he was so concerned about. And um, as he was talking, I'm like, do you know what Sharia means? No. 
Do you know one one edict? No. Um, well, do you you know do you get married in a church? Do you do you do certain things that are based on how Christianity tells you to live your life? Yes. Do you see that as dangerous to anybody? No. So I think there is this abstraction where two or three you know neocon pundits will pick up no. you know one aspect of one radical group and and generalize it for all Muslims and Sharia law is also like you fast during Ramadan you do you do prayers or you know you you take care of your parents all of these wonderful things that are in common with Christianity Judaism and quite a lot of other religions so abstracting one dangerous overly simplified extremist ideology and saying that is what I'm worried about, is part of then going, Islam isn't a religion. Yeah. And I think the whole thing of saying Islam is a political ideology or is or political system goes back to this idea that Islam is the only force in someone's life, that if someone is Muslim, that is the driving force of everything that they do. And if you look at media portrayals, it's no wonder people would think that, because how many times have you seen a portrayal of a Muslim in media where they're doing like a boring normal everyday thing that's not related to religion like it just does not exist right every time you see a muslim in a tv show or movie they're either a terrorist or a victim of terrorism or they're working for the government to help prevent and fight against terrorists so their religion is this force that they that is always in their lives that can never be portrayed in a way outside of that and so when you think about it in that way then it's pretty clear that why people would be afraid of something like that, well, it's going to change our whole way of life. So we spend a decent amount of time at the Center for Media, Religion, and Culture talking about public scholarship. A lot of these problems and issues are coming up from people not having a, a nuanced understanding mm -hmm. of Islam. So do you see any, like, route through your work to address those sorts of issues? Certainly. There is there's always this effort within within the community of scholars that I circulate in to raise the voices of scholars that come from these backgrounds and are researching these backgrounds because it allows them to go, here is a different perspective of looking at things. I think the other thing that is necessary as well is to introduce into scholarship and public conversation new ways of looking at a topic. So for example, when I talk about the Muslim ban, I always frame it as part of a continuum of how immigration restriction has operated at different points of history. Mm. That this is not a singular event. When you name something, you're able to then tackle it, right? So the more you see something as part of a context and a continuum, the more you're able to address the underlying issues at play. Yeah, I think I like what you were talking about at the end because in my work too, I look mostly at visual images and so mm. it's so important to go back and look at this long history in Western culture of orientalizing the sort of Muslim other um, and turning them, as we talked about, animalistic tr tendencies or focusing on the aggression and violence and victimization of women in particular. Um, and a lot of my work, I feel like I'm sort of trying to amplify what's being done. There's so many really innovative, creative stuff that's being done mostly by young Muslim Americans and trying to just show this and show the complexities that they're bringing out. Um, a lot of these um, young people are really trying to not just say, look at us, we're so good, we're happy, we're normal Muslims, but to say, look at the complex experiences of our lives. We're Muslims, but we're also, you know, into 
comic books or we're into hipster culture or we're into fashion um, or we're interested in progressive causes around immigration or racism or various things. And I just think it's so important not just to kind of try and reverse the narrative, but to try and show that there's a lot more complexity there. Like one example is Mona Hader, who's um, did this really great video called Wrap My Hijab, and it's just kind of a fun rap video. But it's not just about fun and happiness and look at how great you know, and how beautiful these Muslim women are, but it's about like addressing issues of colorism and racism within Islamic communities and addressing issues of harassment. Um, and it's showing pride in being a young Muslim American woman and the diversity and the diverse experiences. And I just think there's so many really great stuff being done that I feel like my role as a scholar is to kind of give a space and a voice to share this work and to contextualize it and to bring it to a wider public. I think the thing about Islam is that a lot of people are genuinely really interested and like want to know more and want to understand. But I think there's this kind of um, this cultural barrier that is not not necessarily like a cultural clash. It's just that people understand things very differently and experience things differently. And I think white Christians tend to um, think about church and religion in this very like membership way like every Sunday you do this thing and you check these boxes and it's a little harder to say that like there's a lot of Muslims who maybe don't pray five times a day maybe they fast during Ramadan maybe they don't ever go to a, a, a masjid or a, or a mosque um, but they still identify as Muslim um, so there's like it's just a very different way of understanding religion and religious experiences. There's there's a sense because of a lot of the surveillance at mosques and yeah. in yeah. religious spaces yes. that they're resistant to that because it's a form of self-protection. So for example, there was a move to insert Middle Eastern as part of the um, as part the of census. the census. Yeah. And then as um, Trump was elected, so this was the earlier census, as Trump was elected, all these Middle Easterners were kind of like, well, thank God we didn't succeed at that, because who knows if he'll come up with like some sort of list of, here are the probable Muslims in the country. So I think, yes, they don't count, but also they don't want to count for, for many reasons. Yeah. I think it does kind of go back to this idea of being able to spot and to check a box and to be able to say, you know, who's Muslim or who's not. And I think in Islam, it's more it's more of a belief faith based yeah. thing. And, you know, yes, there are tenets to the religion where if you do them, these are the core tenets of being Muslim. But at the same time, it's not the same sort of feel and it's not the same sort of it's a different kind of community that is more horizontal and and less sort of based on who who showed up and who didn't less institutionalized i guess less you could institutionalized. say yeah. i see a lot of uh, kind of text centric approaches mm -hmm. a lot of times out of, especially out of protestant circles that it's like if we read the quran that that's it's like there's bible over here quran and that, that they kind of operate in this exact same way which is an interesting kind of media Mm -hmm. uh, component to it is to try to say like no there can be <laughs> an expression of religion that's not so caught up in sort of text mm -hmm. uh, the part way of what I see in the US a lot is they'll take a verse that for example doesn't give women great rights and you know they will interpret it in that way whereas I can count two dozen scholars who interpret the text in the exact opposite mm -hmm. ways the text itself in Islam was released in a different way than the Bible was written so for example the prophet would get one verse in response to a situation. 
And so a lot of the interpretation of the text has to go, what was the situation? Here's what happened, and here is the verse, and here is how the verse responded to you know a, a particular case. Yeah. Um, and in the U.S., there isn't really this understanding of how the timeline of how Islam developed or how it drew from other religions or how the text mm -hmm. is treated. Um, that all goes away when you just distill it down to, if I read the text, what text? Right? How, yeah. What translation of the text? Right. Uh, let alone interpretation. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for now. Um, but thanks again to Chrissy and Noor for uh, joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. And thank you for listening to the Media and Religion podcast. If you want to continue our conversation, you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. And we love to hear your thoughts. And you can listen to this and other episodes of the Media and Religion podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever else your favorite podcasts are available. Thank you.